Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest Mark Leverage podcast, this one being for February and March 2024. And I, I really hope you've survived the rigours of December and early January and that you're now fighting fit and ready for another year of magic. Since I spoke to you last, I've attended the session convention in London put on by Vanishing Inc. I've been going for the last few years to this event, and I have to say it's become one of my favourite go-to conventions of the year. I think the reason is because I really like the way that they arrange the programme. Rather than having a rather boring format of lecture, 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 show, all of about an hour in length, they break it up. Yes, you've got your trick and explanation type lectures, but you've also got shorter events, 15 to 20 minute talks put together. And these are often not on tricks at all. These are really on a wider, some wider aspect of magic. And I find those particularly interesting. And it means that rather than getting, if this is the right word, stuck with somebody who you don't particularly enjoy, because most of the, the um, events are fairly short, an hour or less, there's a couple of hour and a half lectures, but mainly it's an hour or less, then it keeps everything fresh. And they manage to leave sensible amounts of time in between each event so that you've got time to refresh yourself, go off, get a coffee, get something to eat, just socialise or session with other people who are there. So it creates a very nice atmosphere. And I think as a result of that, you don't get too exhausted by a relentless procession of things with no gaps in between. And I think a lot of other conventions could learn a lot from that because I think sometimes they do put too much into the programme. Now, I know Vanishing Inc. can spread it out over three days and that does make a difference. A one-day convention perhaps doesn't have that luxury and is trying to give value for money. But as a sort of conventioneer, as an attendee, having sensible gaps in between means that you come back to each thing completely fresh and energised again, rather than being totally exhausted and virtually unable to get out of your seat all day. One of the things that they tried this year was something that they called base camp. And they'd identified that, of course, there are people who attend events such as theirs who perhaps have never been to a convention before, or if they have, they haven't been to the session before. And they feel that sometimes this can be a bit intimidating for people if they don't have much experience of attending conventions and so they decided to say to these people look join come and sign up for base camp where we'll have small groups led by experienced magicians regular attendees where you can just chat get to know people see some magic do some magic yourself in informal circumstances it's almost like a sort of jamming session but slightly more organized so rather than just hoping that it will happen somewhere in the bar or elsewhere in the venue and that does happen as well of course but these are more organized and I wondered whether this would work or not in fact they did ask um, people who go regularly to, for volunteers to to lead these sessions and I volunteered and I did one and and in, in my particular case there was about there were about a dozen people and it was really good fun for an hour we just we, we stood around and we chatted and people did tricks and I did a couple of things and other people did things as well. It promoted discussion and, and friendships. And then what was interesting was that for the rest of the convention, the people who had been in that little group 
when we saw each other elsewhere around in the convention hall, oh, hi, you know, you, you felt like you knew somebody. And I would imagine that for somebody going for the first time or somebody who doesn't know anybody and has perhaps just gone on their own, this is really rather nice. It makes you feel part of the event rather than somebody who's just sitting there all on their own, sort of uh, Johnny No Mates. So I thought it, was, it worked very well. I don't know what first-timers felt about it. I hope that they thought it was a good idea. It certainly seemed that each time I looked into one of the areas where the base camp activities were going on, there always seemed to be a few people in there. The, the initial session, which was one of the tables, was being run by Joshua Jay. So it was really, really rammed. And I thought, oh, gosh, is it going to be like this? Is it going to be so many people crammed into this area? Because it's not quite how I imagined it would be. I imagined it being more intimate, just with a, a relatively small number of people. And when I saw this crowd, probably because it was Joshua amongst others, then uh, I thought this is not quite perhaps what they intended. But once that initial session had finished, and then the others that took place further on into the convention, I think the numbers were much smaller. And so I think it probably achieved what it set out to do. I thought it was a great idea. And I hope it's something that they will repeat in the future. The convention itself, uh, it's a bit invidious to mention individual people because I thought the standard was very good. And the variety that the lecturers and performers offered was excellent. My personal favourite, David Stone, who I have always loved. Ever since he, uh, he first did one of my British Close-Up Magic Symposium conventions, uh, he is a bit of a genius, really. And what I love about the way he performs is, he, first of all, he's incredibly funny, of course, uh, and really off the wall and, and slightly wild. But what he's never lost, I'm very glad to say, is his ability to do great magic as well. And I think sometimes people who, are, who have some sort of a comic genius about them can get distracted away from the magic and the magic becomes a total throwaway, something they don't, almost don't bother with. They don't display their skills. They just major on comedy. And there have been one or two notable people in the past who I feel have degraded their, um, their, their sort of standard of magic just in order to supplement it with wild comedy. But he manages to combine both. And I really enjoyed um, his performance and his lecture, both of which were excellent. In fact, the gala show, which is always the final thing, obviously, uh, on the last night, that's the thing that makes people want to come back next time. And it, an hour into a tight hour and a half show, they fitted four excellent acts. Danny Buckler was the was a very good MC, very funny. And it was a really, really good show. And you came away thinking, yep, I definitely want to go next year. So I suppose from Vanishing Inc.'s point of view, job done. So if you haven't been to the session, I really would recommend it wholeheartedly. It used to be just close up. Now with the big screens, they can with 400 plus people there, they can still do close up because of the big screens. Uh, so it still has an intimate element to it. But it really it's more close up stroke stand up these days. Um, but it's very, very good fun and a great one to attend if you can get there. I've heard it said by strolling or table hopping magicians who have a lot of experience of doing this type of commercial work that they get after a while quite a feeling of dissatisfaction with the way they have to present their magic. When you think about the circumstances under which most strolling magicians have to perform it's very informal. People are distracted, there's often a lot of other things going on at the same time 
And you can get that feeling that you're a bit of a sideshow. I, I know I've certainly felt this on many occasions that what impression can you give or make when there's so much else going on, so much mayhem, people eating meals, discos in the background, band coming on at unexpected moments, announcements, waiting staff interrupting you when you're trying to perform. There are so many elements to it which disrupt a, your performance and can make you feel very dissatisfied that you'll be constantly being interrupted and not being valued and I think it's 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 a pity but it is the nature of the beast and in many ways you could say well quite frankly my magic is worth more than that you might say to yourself I need to have people wanting to see me perform and valuing what I do rather than me just being a performing monkey who turns up at a table for five minutes and then disappears never to be seen again. So as I say, I, I mean, I have often felt like this at certain events. But then when you talk to lay people who have experienced this type of magic, it's amazing what an impact, even the few minutes that we are at a table or with a group, has actually made on them. I think we can undervalue and underestimate ourselves just how amazing lay people find it when they see magic done so close. It's unusual for them. It's commonplace for us because we do it all the time. But for them, it could be the first time they've ever seen it done like this. Or if they have seen it done before, not very often. And often we will take objects of theirs. We'll borrow money, a credit card, a ring, something of theirs and do something with it, making it very personal. And that, again, leaves quite a big impression. And although the way that lay people remember what we do is often a little bit confused, you know, you can often have a conversation with them, they describe a trick they saw a magician do, which they thought was miraculous, and you know from the description exactly which trick they're talking about, but their memory of it has embellished it to the point where it really is a miracle. But nevertheless, the impression that was left is that that magician was great and that they'd really enjoyed the time that uh, he spent with them and because it's only a short period of time and that magician has probably done his some of his best stuff for them it really is memorable it is something that they want to recount to others at a later date and will sometimes remember literally for years so i think bearing that in mind as commercial strolling magicians we should remember this i think when we're feeling dissatisfied with our lot as it were but we're not getting the attention, that for many people this will be the highlight of their evening. And although we were only with them for a few minutes, we may be the magician that they will be talking to either other friends or other magicians when they see them later on about the miracles that we did. And I think if that is the case, and if we can leave that sort of impression with people, then that's a really positive thing for magic and for us as strolling magicians. One of my favourite things to do is to come up with new tricks, or at least new variations on old tricks, perhaps. And the creative process is something that, because I've been doing it for so many years, magicians often ask me about, how, how do you come up with all these, all these tricks? And the answer is, well, there isn't one answer, of course. There are lots of different ways that you can start the creative process. And a lot of the time, I think magicians who perhaps don't feel very creative wonder how it's possible to devise something that hasn't been thought of before. And they probably think that it's all to do with the actual trick and then the method that is used for that trick. 
that that is where the creativity comes. Well, yes, of course, it, it has to be a starting point because if you don't have a, a plot and, a, and a, to, to sort of solve, if you like, through magic, then it's not much good, is it? You obviously got to start with that. But once you've got the, the shell, if you like, the base of a trick, the hardest part, I think, is then deciding what patter to use, what you're going to say to create a context for the trick. And what sort of presentation generally are you going to put with it? Not just the pattern, but the, the whole bit around it. Because I think a lot of magic these days, especially magic that you see perhaps online, is very much trick orientated. It's a trick that is shown and then moved. you move on. There's, there's nothing, there's no routine around it. Because you're doing it, the person is doing it to a screen and is not doing it to a live audience. But when you're in front of a live audience, you, you need to flesh it all out. You need to put something round it that makes it entertaining and that makes the trick itself into something that people actually want to watch. So finding that context, and, and sometimes it takes me ages. The trick might come relatively quickly. Oh, that's a nice idea. Well, you could do this, this, and this. Oh, that'll be fun. Then the next thing is, what am I going to say? How am I going to introduce this the premise of the presentation for this trick. What humour, because I like to put a little bit of humour in if at all possible, you can't always do it of course, but it's nice if you can. What, what, what humour lends itself to this particular plot? Is it a plot that needs humour? Maybe not. But if it does, how's that going to manifest itself? It's not just a string of one-liners in my case. You've got to try and create some sort of a humorous situation or premise so that the audience can appreciate the trick in a in a more fleshed out way rather than just looking at the trick itself. So I think trying to get those things right will can often make the difference between you're coming up with something that is, mm, it's okay, or something that is, ah, oh, this is really fun, or this is really good. This is something I could put into my act that I want to put into my act. Because I think if you, if you don't set that context, then the, the trick in isolation may feel both to you and also quite frankly to your audience sort of thin like it's it's not quite finished it's it's not the the complete article and so that's why especially as something that I'm going to be presenting in my own commercial work I, I spend probably more time working out how to present it and to put things around it and give it a context and a presentation than I do the actual mechanics of the trick itself which is perhaps not what people assume when they think about someone creating a magic trick. When I was a young magician way back in the 1960s, I can remember seeing some adverts in Harry Stanley's Unique Magic Studios catalogue for some coin effects by a magician called Bob Swaddling. Effects such as Blasted and the Swaddling Swindle were items which I couldn't afford because I was a youngster, I didn't have much money. I couldn't afford them, but I really, really wanted them because they seemed like coin miracles, which of course, in a way, they were. Bob was a very young magician at the time and he devised all sorts of clever coin effects and other things too, which have stood the test of time and he's continued to be creative for the whole of his magic life. These days, uh, he doesn't live in England anymore. He lives in, in the United States and has done for some time. And he still does and is involved in magic. And I know he listens to this podcast. And Bob and I, we gradually became friends because over the years, as I 
turned into a magic dealer, started attending conventions. And after a while, Bob then started to attend as well, selling his products. And for, for a period of years, we were attending a lot of the same events together. And we would end up often having a chat. And I really enjoyed talking to him. He's very knowledgeable and an interesting person to converse with. The, since he moved to the States, the only time that I tend to see him is when I go to the 4Fs Magic Convention in Buffalo in New York State. And I go most years to that. And if Bob's there, I try to find a bit of time to sit down with him and, and just catch up and, ha and have a chat. And because he was listening to this podcast, on one occasion a few years ago, he said to me, Mark, um, can I tell you something? I hope don't take offence, he said, but um, have you realised that when you're doing your podcast, the number of times you say um and er, I said, um, um, no, I hadn't realised. He said, yeah, you do. He said, it's it, when you're just listening to a podcast, of course, there are no distractions. You're just you're hearing audio only. So, of course, any this is like a verbal tick, isn't it? Any verbal tick, which as the person doing the presenting of the podcast makes, once you've noticed it, it can become very intrusive and irritating. And he said to me, I think it'd be a good idea if you could try to get rid of that. And I, I took this to heart. And ever since then, I've made an attempt not to to um and er uh too often. It's almost impossible to completely cut it out. And I've now put made a rod for my own back, no doubt, because as the listener, you're now going to be listening to how many times in the rest of this podcast I go um and er. Uh. And of course, the reason why I was doing um and er uh is because when you're doing a podcast like this, it's not scripted. I'm not reading a script. I just want it to be natural. I just want as much as possible to, for you to feel that I'm having a chat with you as if you're sitting across a table from me. And in order to do that, I can't have it too scripted. I know the topics I'm going to be talking about. And I think through some of the things I might like to to include in what I say. But I don't write it all down so that hopefully it comes out naturally. The um and the er, what that does, it gives me time to think. So sometimes you start a sentence and you go um as you're thinking about the next thing that you're going to say. Anyway, I as I say, I took took it to heart what Bob had said and since then I have tried very hard not to allow myself to do that particular verbal tick. Now the reason I mention this is because I think as performers we can also fall foul of this. When I listen to podcasts and I listen to quite a lot not only magic ones but I, I'm a football fan so I like to listen to quite a few football podcasts on a regular basis and some of the people on there drive you absolutely insane. They will use the word like five or six times per sentence or things like that. And when you notice it, it's absolutely infuriating. And you feel like shouting at the at the whatever you're listening to on it on and saying, no, it's not like it. It either is it or it's not it. But it does it have to, everything have to be. Well, it's like. So as performers, are there verbal ticks that that you use when you're performing. You probably don't realise, but I bet there are. And I think it's actually quite a good idea sometimes to record your show, just the audio. It doesn't have to be video, although video as well, if you like, doesn't really matter. But the audio alone means you'll concentrate on exactly what you're saying. And hopefully, even if you can't notice it, get somebody else to listen to it and tell you, well, do you realise you use the word OK? at the end of every sentence. 
and you thought, oh, I, I never realised that. It's a really good thing to do because I think for an audience, although they are hopefully distracted visually by what you're doing and not just listening to what you're saying, a verbal tick that is really noticeable can be off-putting for an audience, break their concentration and reduce in many ways their enjoyment of what you do. So getting rid of those verbal ticks, I think, if you can possibly do it, is a great idea. Di Vernon once famously said, confusion isn't magic. And I think what he meant by that is that when we create a presentation or a plot or an effect, that if it, that what actually happens is not clear to the audience, if the whole thing is muddled or confused, then the magic will be reduced. The audience won't be able to appreciate what's just happened because they're confused by it all. And this was brought home to me uh, at, the, at the session convention, which I mentioned earlier, with the act of David Gerard. David Gerard is an excellent American mentalist. He does other stuff as well, but he's mainly a mentalist. And at the convention, he, he did his show and the following day he did a lecture. And he's extremely funny, very, very fast paced and does some quite extraordinary things. He fooled me on a number of occasions with some of the mentalist stuff that he was doing. But the problem that I think that he has is that he works almost too fast. Certainly for my taste and with conversations with friends of mine who also saw him work, they felt similarly that he creates so much confusion, which is, I think, deliberate, but it's also very difficult for you, therefore, to appreciate fully what he's doing. He sets up several with several members of the audience various strands of an effect or effects, sometimes more than one at a time. And he will jump from one spectator to the other and will come back to somebody who perhaps he originally involved 10 minutes ago. And when he comes back to that person as an audience member, you're thinking, oh, heck, now what was this person doing? Was this, did this person select a card? Are they thinking of a, a moment that's important to them in their early childhood? Uh, what is it that they were doing? And you can't remember what this particular person is supposed to be doing as part of the act. And so when he then reveals something, the effect is minimised. It's, it's not got the impact that it should have because you, you couldn't remember what it was that the, how the person had arrived at whatever it is they're thinking of that he then apparently reads their mind. It's so, so confusing. And I think with the speed of delivery of his gag lines and the constant movement, he's, he's pacing up and down, going in and out of the audience. While it, at one level it's amazing, at another level it is confusing. I think that's a, a real pity. If I kept wanting him to say, put the brakes on. Now, at one point in his show, he does come out of the mentalist thing and he goes into a story, um, probably not a true one, but nevertheless, a, a story about doing magic for his grandmother who had dementia. And he sits down for that and does a three fly routine, which is kind of out of context of everything else he was doing in his act. But nevertheless, he slowed down. And as a result of that, I thought the magic had more impact. And then as soon as he went back to the mentalism again, he sped up to 90 miles an hour and we went back to the slightly confused approach. Now, he works, I believe, for a lot of corporate events where 
as anybody who does that side of work will tell you, if you snooze, you lose. That corporate audiences often are very intolerant and they want lots of quick action. They want funny, aggressive sort of, a, a, of an approach from the performer. And that it's very difficult for a performer who isn't like that to survive, or at least the performer may feel they need to work at 90 miles an hour in order for it to be effective. But I would suggest and far be it from me to, to, to criticise David, but as an audience member who hadn't seen him before, I really liked him and I really wanted to enjoy more what he did, but I felt I was being prevented from doing so simply by the speed of delivery and the slightly confused plot lines that I felt that he was sort of portraying to the audience. So that's an interesting thought, isn't it? And something that we could all look at with our own acts. Do we make everything we do clear to the audience or are we in fact making it confused and therefore that it really isn't magic okay at this point if you're a performer i'd like you to imagine a situation that i'm sure at some point you will have been in you're going to be doing perhaps a show or at the very least you're sort of setting up your stuff for a, a table hopping gig or something like that and there might be, let's say, one trick, for instance, with a stacked deck. And you take the deck out and you set up the deck in the order that it needs to be to do the trick and you put it away. And then about a few minutes later, 10 minutes later, you think, oh, did I do that right? And you take it out again and you open up the pack and you take it out and you go through it, checking it and thinking about what needs to happen. Yeah, that looks right. Yeah, that's it. and you put it away again. And then because you're a bit nervous, before you actually go out and perform this, what do you do? You take the darn thing out again and you check it again. Nothing has changed since you looked the last two times, but for your own peace of mind, or what you think is going to be your peace of mind anyway, you take the pack out and you look through it again. And it's often at that moment that for reasons best known to yourself, that in the course of checking that in fact it's all okay, you kind of unset what previously had been perfectly well set. So then when you go to do the trick, it goes wrong. And you think, but I checked all this. How on earth has this gone wrong? Well, the answer is you checked it too often. And I, I know I've done it myself. It's sometimes you, you get almost too paranoid that you won't have set something up correctly. And so therefore you keep on and on checking it. But as I say, that's when you might make the mistake. So that's one thing we do. The, the other thing that happened to me the other day was that um, a, a trick that I've been doing for many, many years, I was going to include in my act. And I was just running through it. And I realized that if I change the handling slightly, that it might make it a little bit more convincing. So I went through the handling a couple of times. Oh, yes, that makes total sense to me if I if I do this instead of this, then that means that will happen and the, the outcome will be the same. But I think it maybe tightens it up just a little bit. Yeah, it makes it a bit better. I then went to do the trick using the new method. And three quarters of the way through the handling, I realized that I'd completely stuffed it up. And that I, I'd, in somehow that I couldn't at the time think how I'd done this, it was wrong that the, the, the way it was going, I think this isn't going to work. I am going to be in a lot of trouble here. <laughs> and so I had to kind of fudge it a bit and I found a way to get round the problem, but it wasn't ideal. 
The audience, I don't think, were, were in any way aware that it wasn't as it should have been, but I was, and it really bothered me. And I thought, why? Why didn't this work? When I'd gone through it beforehand, I couldn't see why this change of handling didn't work. So I went back afterwards and looked at the trick and went through the handling, and then I realised I'd made a very simple error. But because I hadn't thought it through enough, and because I tried to change it, from something that had worked for years without any hiccups at all. The new handling, there was something in it that if I didn't do it in a very precise, particular way, it wasn't going to work. And unfortunately, on this very first occasion when I'd gone to do it, I'd done it the wrong way. So you sometimes can almost cut off your nose to spite your face in an attempt to make it even better and fiddle with something that if it ain't broke, don't fix it should have been left as it was, I'd actually made it worse. Well, it wouldn't have been worse had I done it correctly, but because I didn't, then it was worse. So I thought sometimes you've just got to leave well alone. So that stack deck, check it once. If it's right, leave it alone. And with tricks that work perfectly well, unless there's something really major that you can do that will improve it exponentially, don't change it. If it's worked for years and it's very effective and you know it really well, then surely the best thing to do is to leave well alone. So there's a couple of things that uh, I certainly would recommend that you think about yourself. Are you changing things for the sake of it when you don't need to? And do you really check that stuff more often than you need to as well? Because that's when you're, obviously you might make mistakes. These days, as I'm sure you'll agree, trying to market yourself and your shows is actually quite complicated. It used to be so simple years ago, but now there are so many possibilities, particularly online, that it can be sometimes difficult to know how to approach it all. One thing that I think should overarch everything that we do, though, is deciding who it is at any given moment that we're trying to talk to or speak to or advertise to. Because I think if you don't consider exactly who the recipient of the information is supposed to be, it's easy to place advertising copy or photographs or video that are just basically not of interest to the target audience. I mean, if you think about it, if you're a children's entertainer, then who, and you're after, for instance, birthday parties for children, who is the person or people that you're trying to contact? It's going to be the parents of the children, isn't it? and probably it's going to be the mum. So then you start to think to yourself, okay, well, where do mums hang out? They hang out on Facebook, okay. Maybe Facebook ads for my children's ad would be a good place to go. Or are you talking, for instance, if you're a corporate magician, to business people? If you want trade show magic, again, business people. The way that you couch the language that you use, the things that you tell them, the image you present of yourself surely will be very different than if you're a children's entertainer and talking to a mum about a children's birthday party. So depending on what type of act you have and who you're trying to talk to will surely depend on how you present yourself. And this is where sometimes having a website where you simply explain that you can do basically everything might not be the best approach because you won't be talking specifically to any one target audience. You'll be trying to appeal to everybody and possibly end up talking to nobody. And even if on your website you, you split up 
your various shows, if you do more than one type of show, into different pages or areas, that's still better than having one catch-all page where it tells that you can do this and that and the other. The, the phrase about being um, jack of all trades and master of none was, is never more appropriate than in this situation, I think, because we, when we present ourselves, want to appear to be an expert in whatever the person is that we're talking to, what they need. You can't be an expert, well, you could be, but you, it wouldn't be wise to pretend that you're an expert trade show music, magician in the evenings and in the daytime you're a kid's entertainer. The, the two things don't seem particularly compatible. So if, you're an, if you're a corporate magician, surely you can't be a children's entertainer. Well, of course, we all know you can. But the person reading or seeing the information might think, well, hmm, no, I don't want a children's entertainer coming to do my corporate event. So I think trying to assess who you're, the very first thing you should do is to assess who it is you're talking to and then concentrate initially on creating publicity that's right for that particular person or group of people. And I think in the days of, I mean, I still do a certain amount of publicity that is offline as well as online, so an actual advert. I always used to make sure that my adverts talk to a particular audience and I'm consistent with that particular approach. I've worked out, okay, I want to talk to, let's just say, adult birthday parties. So everything that all the adverts and the pictures and the text and everything else that I talk about is aimed at somebody who is perhaps having a 50th, 60th or 70th birthday party and is looking for an entertainer. And by concentrating on thinking, what would that person want? What are the problems that that person might think that they are going to encounter with their event? How will my magic solve that problem for them? And by, by concentrating on their needs specifically, and talking in my head directly to those people, I think I stand a better chance of appealing to them and getting the booking as a result. So rather than just t t telling them all the things I can do, I very specifically tell them what they I think they need and how I can help them to satisfy that need. So I think that's a really good way to go. And although in some ways it means you may have to market yourself very differently and separately to different market sectors, ultimately, I think that's the best way to go. Pretty much all of the best performers in the world have a very clearly defined performing character, don't they? It might be in the way they look, perhaps the way they dress, or it could be in their attitude type of patter that they use, the approach that they take to their magic, even the magic itself that they present, it all is sort of consistent with the person that you think you're seeing as an audience when you look at them. And I think when you do have a strong performing character, it does actually make trick selection and the presentation that you put around those tricks easier. Because then you think to yourself, okay, as my performing character, how would he or she approach that? How would he do that? What, what would be the, the essence of the, the context? And then when you know what your performing character is, then you can set the parameters correctly so it's consistent with the other things that you do. Uh, and this was brought home to me. I saw a magician, it happened to be a lady magician, who, was, who I thought was, was lovely. She, she presented her magic really nicely, was technically very proficient. 
The only thing was that she was slightly, in my mind anyway, a bit inconsistent with who she was in the way she portrayed what she did to the audience. One minute she was sort of one type of character, I felt, and then at the end of that trick, she would go into another trick which wasn't in any way connected to the character I thought she was from the first trick, and suddenly she was a completely different type of person. Now, on one level, you could say, well, they are a bit of variety there. You never quite know what you're going to get. Yes, well, that is certainly true. But what it actually made me feel was slightly confused. Oh, OK, I thought you were a mentalist and now you appear to be something completely different or whatever it might have been. And I thought that actually spoilt the overall effect. And I felt myself thinking, if only somebody could present to her exactly what character she's supposed to be. So look, this is how you come across. This is what you look best as, this type of character. Now let's take that trick out because that isn't possibly the right one for that. Let's put this trick in instead. And if somebody was to produce her or director in that way, I felt that it would come out much, much better. Now, I'm, I'm, it may well be that she's in the process of doing that uh, and it's in the early stages of this evolution of her character. I don't know. Or this might be it forever. And I'm not saying necessarily that that makes her a bad magician because it doesn't. But I just felt as an audience member, as I was sitting there watching her, I felt like I wanted her to be more consistent and that I would have enjoyed it more. And I think you see this with, you think of some of the best acts in the world where they are really, really clearly defined with, within a few minutes often of their audience. You know, Jeff Hobson, his attitude, his lines, his, his sort of slightly camp character, consistent throughout his whole act. Everything he says, the way he deals with the spectators, the magic that he uses, it is all designed to fit into his character. Matt King, somebody else who does that brilliantly, he has this sort of hickey American uh, personality. Everything he does is reflected well into, as being part of that character. It all fits. And as a result of that, it, it's funnier. It's a bit like when you watch a sitcom. When you watch a, a new sitcom, it takes a couple of episodes, several episodes, for you to get into the characters, for you to understand the quirk quirky nature perhaps of the individual people playing the characters and why that then becomes funny it's because you know how they're going to react to a situation because you understand now their character and that makes it funnier oh yes he would react like that because that's the way that character would react to that situation and it's the same with magic that if our characters are strong enough then the way we react to the magic that happens and the type of magic that we use that should be reflected on our character so that the audience can identify with, oh, yes, yeah, that's exactly what he would think about that or the way he would deal with that. So knowing what your performer character is, performing character is, is really important if you want to be able to do that. Ever since magic dealers have been selling magic to magicians, they've had to grapple with a particular issue, and that is how honest they're going to be in the description of the trick that they're trying to sell. Because magic is fairly unique, isn't it, in that you are not only selling perhaps props to do the trick with, but you're also selling a concept and a secret 
of how the trick is actually done. And part of the uh, appeal and intrigue for the buying magician is often if he's fooled by the description or the video dem that he sees of the trick, the chances are he's more likely to buy it. But the difficulty is how can you be fair to the magician who might purchase the trick and give him enough information to make an informed decision about whether he wants it or not, while at the same time protecting the essence of the trick, which might be its secret. Because if you make the, the explanation almost so obvious through the description of the trick, perhaps nobody will buy it. They'll just rip it off and go off and do it anyway. It is a problem. And this was uh, brought to my attention recently um, with the advert for a trick called PTSD in which the catch sort of the catch line about it, catchphrase for it was, they name a card, you take it out of an envelope. Okay, so that is crystallized down into a few words, basically what the effect is. Apparently somebody names a card, you reach into an envelope and produce that card. An absolute miracle. The video den that goes with it also appears to back that up, that somebody you're seeing in the video, you'll see a spectator name a card and the magician brings one card out, an empty envelope, and, and that is the card they've just named. However, the text that accompanies the, the description, there's a little bit more information. And it mentions in the body of the text the fact that there is a one-stage equivocate that's going to be required. Now, for magicians, this reduces the intrigue of the trick because now you start to see a potential method. It doesn't give the whole method, but it gives enough for the magician to feel disappointed because the pure effect, a spectator names a card, the magician takes out of an envelope, has been compromised, as it, of course it has to be. Magic isn't real, you know. There is always going to be a method. So therefore, for, for in, in terms of the impact on the magician who might buy it, it is reduced. And it was interesting because at the bottom of that page of publicity, where they invite comments, normally they're hoping, of course, for comments that are saying, this is the greatest trick ever, you must buy it. But there were a couple of people who put comments to say they felt misled by the video and that it wasn't fair, that it, the implication was that you could just literally name a card and bring it out of an envelope and that they didn't trust the people producing the trick as a result. Well, I thought that was a bit a bit harsh, actually, because they have described it in the text. If you don't read the text and you just watch the video, you might be caught out. And certainly that tagline at the, at the top is definitely a bit misleading. But nevertheless, this is the dilemma you're in. You can't give away too much, but you need to give away enough. And, and knowing where to draw that line is very difficult. Now, there's been a lot of comment over the years, particularly since video dems became the norm, that a lot of selective editing goes on and that, therefore, the image that is given of tricks, especially when there, it, this is not in any way explained further in the accompanying text of what the trick is, it can be very misleading. And people get very disappointed when something they, they thought from looking at the video, which cut away at certain points to take away elements where perhaps a card was palmed and loaded all you saw was the result of the loading and not the actual moment when it was loaded and the producers would say yes but 
that's what the audience remembers. What you're seeing in the video is what the audience experience. And as a purchasing magician, you need to be able to see that in order to appreciate just how good this is going to be when you do it for lay people. The magicians, on the other hand, say, no, that's dishonest. You made it look like it's more of a miracle than it really is. So it's a really difficult one. And where you draw that line in the sand and where you draw the line so that you give the magician enough information, but, but not too much, is, a, is going to be different depending on who you are when you sell the trick. And, and the trick in itself, how complex the method is. Is it something that is literally one piece of information will tip the whole thing, or whether one piece of information will give the magician more of an idea what's involved, but doesn't give away everything? And that, of course, will vary from trick to trick. And that's a dilemma that magic producers have. Well, thank you very much for listening to the latest podcast. I hope you've enjoyed all the things that I've talked about. And I hope you have a good couple of months, and I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Bye for now.